Welcome to the pen and the yod. This week's Torah portion is Bayet Kanan. Rabbi Michael Siegel and author Jonathan I talk about this portion and making senses of hearing overseeing. And what a portion we have this week. If you can't find something to talk about in the portion of Bayet Kanan, then you got a problem. This portion has the Shman, the Viahafta, the Ten Commandments, so... You know, it's an embarrassment of uh, Torah. It's like embarrassment of Torah riches. So I want to I want to talk about the Shema with you today. I want to think about it because, first of all, if we kind of just disassemble it, it appeals to a specific sense in our body, not sight, not touch, not taste, but hearing. And I wonder what you think that's about. Hmm. Why hearing? Um, why is hearing? Hearing requires, in some ways, more activity, um, requires more thought uh, in a way. You know, you have to really, um, I don't know, I think you have to try to make a connection with hearing in a way that maybe you don't necessarily with, with sight alone. I, I remember back when we used to listen to albums, the idea that you would just put on an album and sit in front of that album and really focus on it and really listen and try to hear everything you could in that album um, something we don't we don't do very much anymore. But you're seeking a connection that maybe hearing um, among the senses is especially good for. Right. I actually experienced this with Zoom. The whole fatigue of Zoom and the distraction of looking at multiple screens. And scientists have talked about how your brain knows that that this isn't a real conversation. That this isn't actually happening but it's happening virtually. And the strain of that conversation and the distraction that in this odd way is hard to concentrate. And when I talk to someone on the phone, I find myself much more focused in some ways and for a longer duration because I can just listen and take it in. I think that's absolutely true. You're Because you can't see the person, I think you concentrate harder to try to pick up on their emotions, try to pick up on what they're conveying. And you can't get any of that in, in an email, but you can get a lot of it on the phone. And I think that's why in many ways I, I prefer the phone certainly to a Zoom or a FaceTime when I want to have a, an intimate conversation or when I'm doing an interview for, you know, for my research and I want to ask someone, you know, challenging questions and I want to really get them to open up to me. My first choice is to do that face to face, but my second choice is the phone and, and Zoom or FaceTime or Skype would be somewhere further down the list. So to kind of turn, come back to the theological issue, because the word Shema, is specifically chosen to present the oneness of God. And it's not a prayer, but it's almost a Jewish pledge of allegiance. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So theologically, by focusing on hearing and not seeing, it's almost a polemic against paganism. Because what was worshipped in the pagan universe, the sun, the moon, the stars, the earth, things that you could see that were right before you. And from the Jewish point of view, not the Jewish point of view, the Torah's point of view, miracles can be deceiving to you. The Israelites saw a whole variety of miracles along the way, but they, I don't think that deepened their faith for the long term. In the moment, it might have encouraged them to walk across the Sea of Reeds and things like that. It took them a step further. But 
from a theological religious belief point of view, hearing is the act of taking it into yourself, allowing it to become part of who you are. And I think that's just an interesting idea, and I'm wondering what your thoughts are about that. It is interesting, you know, all of those miracles, seen, experienced, lived, are not enough to do the job unless you're willing to hear, unless you're willing to listen. And, and you know, I think hearing and listening are really active words. When you, when you want to be heard, you don't want to, someone just to acknowledge that they heard you. You want to feel that they heard you. You want to see how their actions reveal that they heard you. You know, when you tell somebody you, you need something from them, when you tell somebody that you want more attention from them, when you tell someone and you're hungry, you don't want to just know that they heard you. You want you want them to act on it. So it's it's a request for empathy. It's a request for love. And that's very different from just saying, okay, watch this. And so it's how people use the term, I hear you, I heard you. I And it's funny how we flip the meaning, right? I hear what you're saying, but sometimes that's just the way to get somebody, you know, out of your face. That's a segue to now here's my opinion. But my opinion is more valid than yours. That's right. I think we all have had that experience where you're talking to somebody and you realize they're not listening to a word you're saying, but they're kind of formulating what they want to say in response. And so it's not the kind of conversation. I would extend this idea again to prayer. Because when we pray, the theory, I guess, is is that God is listening. And I'm wondering if that is actually what prayer is all about. Maybe prayer is about the question of, are we listening to what we're saying? Are we thinking about the words that are coming out of our mouths? Are we reflecting for a moment in any meaningful way? That's a question. When you pray, it's as if we have kind of are standing up and saying, thank you, God, thank you, God, thank you, God, God, you're wonderful. Are we, is the prayer experience entering us? Yeah, and that gets to me. I mean, you know, I, I love to go to these big questions. You know, what's the point of religion? You define religion as believing in, in something bigger, something supernatural, some um, all-knowing, all-seeing power. What's the point of it? Is it just to know that they're controlling the universe, or is it to engage in a relationship and to ask the questions that, that need to be asked. Is it about things you say and you do as opposed to that almighty power that, that we sort of build our religions around? Well, in a sense, the Shema offers an answer to this question, but not in the words itself. It's an interesting issue. And here we're going to have to move to sight in a way, because when you see the Shema in the Torah itself, when it appears in the book of Deuteronomy, whether you can read Hebrew or not, you'll be able to find it because the Ayin, which is the last word of Shema, is enlarged and the Dalid of Echad, one, is enlarged. And the reason is because in ancient Hebrew, the letter Ayin could also resemble an Aleph, right? So if you read Shin Mem Aleph instead of Shin Mem, Shin Mem Ayin, it would mean Shema, which in Hebrew means perhaps. Perhaps, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Probably not something that is going to, you're going to want to say. And so the ayin is written twice as large as a normal letter. And then the last letter, echad, the dalid, is written very large because in Hebrew, when you write a dalid, it can also look like a reish. If you mistakenly read a dalid for a reish, it's acher. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is another. And so those two letters are enlarged to sort of protect the sanctity of the words. However, if you take the ayin that's enlarged and the dalid that is enlarged, it spells a Hebrew word. 
aid. And the word aid in Hebrew means a witness. So what does it mean to actually internalize the Shema? It means that you're going to be a witness for God. How do you become a witness for God? By the way you act, by the way that you comport yourself, by the way you speak, by the way that you engage with others, and on it goes. It's an interesting idea, don't you think? And so, and so what does it mean to be a religious person? It means to be a representative of God. Right, that it's not just worship. It's not just uh, bowing and, and obeying. It's it's being in a relationship. And that means that you're doing the work, or at least you know half of the work. How do I know if someone is a religious person? It's not by what happens in the synagogue. We shouldn't measure religiosity by weekly observance alone. It's nice and it's, and it's wonderful that people, people feel attached. But the real test is what happens when you walk out the door? What happens when you leave the service and you go into Kiddush? Are you paying attention to the other people in the room. Are you looking out for the person who might not have anyone to talk to? Are you noticing the person who's missing in synagogue who's a regular? And are you going to make a mental note to call that person to check up on them? You know, just ask somebody, is that person okay? I know they're a little older. And those are the real measures of religiosity. Does, in other words, how much have you internalized? How much have you heard? I think a Jewish measure. Yeah, it's a good question, but is it just a Jewish measure? I mean, what if, what do you say to people who say to you, uh, well, running is my religion or music is my religion and they have a community built around that and they care for their members of their congregation and they try to make themselves better people and they, is that a form of religion too? Do you accept that definition? I think that's a great question. I've been reading a book called Strange Rights. The author's last name is Burton. And it's a very interesting book because what she does in the book is she looks at soul cycle as a religion. And she makes the point that, or yoga as a religious activity. So that, and she makes the point that, I'm going to develop it. If I went up to someone in the congregation and on a random basis and said, you know, it would be great if you started coming to Morning Minion at 7 a.m. I mean, it's, it's every day, but I think it would be great for you. 7 a.m. I think we kind of get a sense of the response, like, that's pretty early, Rabbi. I got a lot going on. It's a nice idea, but I'm not so sure about that. But then think about people who are into yoga and that they're making 6 a.m. appointments, right? And the time and effort that they put into their time at the gym or running, or things of that nature. And by the way, I, I don't mean this in a negative way. What I'm trying to do is elucidate your point, which is that we can judge someone's religious approach by the way that they value something, by the way they value it, and what it does for them. Because when you begin to look at the discipline of, of how people eat and the choices they make, what is it that is ultimate to them? And that's ultimately what religion is about. It is a measure of what's ultimate to you and how do we understand that? And so here in this Pledge of Allegiance, the Jewish Pledge of Allegiance, you're pledging allegiance to God. Otherwise, you are somewhere else, and that doesn't mean you can't balance these ideas, not one or the other, but when you begin to look at the construction of your lives and the choices that we make, where are we coming out here? Yeah, I think that's uh, that's a great question. And 
you can call yourself a religious person and not do those things, not conduct yourself with those kinds of, with that kind of questioning and that kind of commitment to the values. And um, just as a religious as somebody who considers themselves an atheist. I think that's right. I think that agnostics uh, is probably a larger group, but what we do and the commitment we make is the ultimate measure. And I want to come back to this idea of Shema, that what do we allow in? What do we take with us? What's going to permeate and what are we going to value? I want to be fair here and I also want to be candid and honest. The issue isn't just on the Jewish person's part, it's also on the institution's part. Because how are we representing Judaism? How relevant is it? How meaningful is it? How accessible is it? And that's a very large question for us today. What's the bar of entry? How do we do that? In other words, do we make it possible for you to engage and hear with a lower level of knowledge, or do we have the expectations, well, listen, if you want to come to the service, then you've got to learn Hebrew, and you're going to have to do this, and this, 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 and this, and, and we're going to study the, the Siddur, and we're going to study the Torah, and then it's going to become clear. Or can we create easier steps, more accessible ways to be part of the Jewish people, so that people can hear and engage and value what they're getting, as opposed to feeling devalued, because they may not have enough education, Jewish education, to fully engage. Yeah, that's a great point. And um, what we said in the beginning, that listening is a, it requires heart and requires effort and requires engagement. That means that it's a two-way street. We have to really create the environment where people want to, to listen because you can't force it on anybody. Well, I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad we talked today. and can tell you that I listen intently to what you have to say. <laughs> and um, it's an important conversation to think about what we hear, what we allow in, and how we translate that into action to become a witness. And I, that's the hope and prayer that we have, is that the Jews will be, in every age, a witness to God, whatever they do and wherever we go. Amen. Thanks, Jonathan. Thank you, Rabbi. <laughs>